In our text this morning, John continues his account of the early days of the ministry of Jesus. We'll see a discussion arises about the role Jesus takes within the greater ministry of God's people. John the Baptist has his disciples and Jesus joins him. But what happens when Jesus breaks off from John the Baptist? Who then is the center of the ministry, John or Jesus? Now, I don't believe it will surprise you that John says that Jesus should be the center. But what may surprise you is the way that John decides to explain it. He uses the imagery of a wedding, of a marriage, the ceremony where two people become one. This is John's way of explaining that there, are, the, there can only be one center. There can't be two. There's one center, and the two become one. There aren't two bridegrooms at a wedding. There is one. And the only question that we have to ask ourselves in this analogy is, where do we stand in this wedding that John talks about? We'll answer that in our text this morning. Again, we're going to be reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. We will finish this third chapter this morning. These are the words of God. Let's give attention to them, church. John writes, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, He who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives us the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. The word of God for his people. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your text this morning, we pray that, most importantly, that we would see your son Jesus. Your word says that you have spoken to us in these latter days through Jesus. He speaks to us. And all the scriptures bear witness to what he has said and who he is. And Father, we pray that as I I preach this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be upon me. As we just read, you give the Spirit without measure, and I pray, Lord, that that would not just be the case for me and my words, but even the reception of your word this morning. Be with all of us as we encounter Jesus in your word. I pray that you would sanctify us, anoint us with your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would um, come to us in the power and demonstration of your Holy Spirit, that we might see Jesus clearly. 
Brother, any words that I say that are not of you, I pray that they would go in one ear, right out the other. I pray that the the thoughts of my mind, the meditations of my heart, and, and my words would be pleasing to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So before we get too far into this passage, we need to realize that this is hitching to a greater context. If you'll look at verse 22, John says, after this, after this, meaning he's he's continuing his thought. He's showing that John still has the Nicodemus discourse on his mind. So his thought moves from the new birth, which we've talked thoroughly about, on to baptism. He starts talking about baptism after this. He says, Jesus and his disciples were baptizing, verse 22 through 24. Now, first, I should note that John's wording can be a little bit misleading. I talked to one of the, the members here just a couple weeks about, uh, ago about this. It looks to say that Jesus is himself baptizing with his disciples, that they're all baptizing, but that's actually not the case. Jesus is not baptizing himself, and we can see this as if we keep reading. If you look in chapter 4, uh, maybe a page over or two, uh, John uh, chapter 4, 1 through 3 says this. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples, than John, and then it says this in parentheses, verse 2, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. So we can see that Jesus himself did not actually baptize. And so, so what John means here is that Jesus was an overseer in this discipleship ministry. Jesus is heading up this ministry, and that's actually the whole point. Jesus is becoming identified with this ministry moving forward. He's making and baptizing more disciples than John the baptizer. And as we'll see, that's actually a good thing, that Jesus is kind of taking over this. Now, imagine this. Imagine being John the Baptist, earning a title like that, being John the Baptist. You are known for baptizing. Then someone who you baptized is now coming and baptizing even more people than you have just baptized. And you have disciples around looking at this saying, what's going on? What is, what's this Jesus figure doing? This is why John's disciples were probably concerned. They're, they don't know what's going on. They're confused. I thought, John, I thought you had this ministry over here. Now what is just this Jesus doing? Now up until this point, you'll remember that John had started this baptismal ministry, and Jesus just simply joins him along the way. So it seems like John's the main guy, right? He's baptizing Jesus. Yes, he says these things like, I'm, I'm not worthy to do this. I shouldn't be baptizing you, Jesus. But Jesus says, let it be done to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus insists. So, if you compile all the gospel accounts, it appears that Jesus and John, for at least a short time, were baptizing together. They were doing ministry together before he was in prison. That's why you see that little part in the parentheses there. This was before John's imprisonment, when Jesus and John were still together. But over time, John and Jesus parted ways, and Jesus starts baptizing independently with his own disciples. And of course, this sparks a discussion. What are John's disciples going to think of Jesus now baptizing with his disciples? And that's why we see in verse 25 this. It says, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So John's disciples and a Jew were speaking about the purification side of this baptismal ministry. When they're talking about purification, this is what they were thinking of. They were thinking of baptism. Why? Because John's baptism was strictly a baptism of repentance. It didn't have the meaning that Christian baptism has that we know today, right? Baptism has grown in its conception and what it actually means. You weren't buried with John in baptism when John baptized, right? 
Not, when we're baptized now, we're buried with Christ and baptized. We're buried with Christ in our baptism. And we rise with Christ in our baptism. And we're united and are identified with Jesus. But that's not the idea that these disciples of John had. It hadn't taken on that new meaning yet. So they're a little bit confused. What's going on with this Jesus figure? Yet... Even though they haven't grown into this conception, you can see that baptism still yet was already starting to point towards identity, not just this general repentance. It's starting to shift towards that meaning. So since Jesus and John were no longer baptizing side by side, they start asking legitimate questions like, is this John's baptism that Jesus is performing? Or is this Jesus' baptism that John is performing? Right? Can you see what's going on? Who is greater here? Who, who is the main focus? Who is the center of this ministry? And what does baptism even really mean? What is going on? And the real central question I think that they're asking is, is this okay? What Jesus is doing, is this all right? Do you approve of this, John? This was what we see in verse 26. There's this implied question that we read in verse 26. It says, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was, was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. All are going to him. So does Jesus have the authority to do this? And does John approve of Jesus independently baptizing? That's what they're wanting to know. John, what do you say? So his disciples probably assume at this point that John's just being a little bit overly generous, right? He's saying nice things. He's being humble. He's saying, I'm not worthy to even take the sandals off this guy. This guy. But his disciples might be thinking, well, John's just being nice about this. He's just uh, being generous to Jesus. And this is causing them to question, is, is Jesus overstepping his bounds and John's just kind of letting him walk on him? What is going on? They say all are going to him, implying probably a couple things. Probably that some of John's disciples have now kind of shifted towards Jesus. Maybe they're losing some people. Maybe they're starting to go to Jesus. Or it could also mean that all kinds of people are coming to him. Look at the people that he's baptizing. Have you seen the way they're living their lives? All kinds of people are coming to him. All are coming to this Jesus figure. John, what do you say? What is going on? In other words, John, it seems like Jesus is stealing your thunder. John, Jesus is trying to become Jesus the Baptist. We, we thought you were John the Baptist. This, is this Jesus the Baptist? Is there two? What is the center? What is going on? What do you say, John the Baptist? So we read John's reply in verse 27 through 30. John flushes this out. He, he's being pastoral. He's actually showing people the right way, and he wants to give them a good answer. And he reminds them by telling them what we read in chapter 1 about his denial of being the Christ. He's saying, I'm not the center. I am not the point. He wants to make it absolutely clear that he is not the Messiah. John the Baptist is not the Savior. He's just a forerunner. He's saying, I'm preparing the way. I'm getting things ready. And my whole purpose, my whole ministry is actually to get out of the way and let the Messiah come onto the scene. And he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. And that's where I really want to camp out this morning. In verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. Now, what he's doing here is he's borrowing some Old Testament imagery. We, we have this idea of weddings and bridegrooms and brides because Paul has talked a lot about it in the New Testament. But up until this time, they didn't talk about it a ton. The prophets kind of told, foretold of some things to come. and They spoke about God in this way and Israel in this way. And he's, he's, he's speaking about Israel as the bride and God being the bridegroom. We've seen that. Now, this is why he says a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's from heaven. 
Right? It's kind of weird the way he speaks. It's this whole passage really is just kind of confusing. The way that it's worded all. Some commentators have even said that it's completely out of place and we've just put it here on accident. But I don't think that's the case. I think John actually has a logical thought. It's just kind of hard to follow what he's doing. And here I think what he's doing is he's making, the, making it clear that John is different than Jesus. How? Because Jesus is a figure sent directly from heaven. And you need, you need to listen to him because Jesus is the bridegroom. Now, what does this imply? If Jesus is the bridegroom, think about who the bridegroom was in the Old Testament. That was God. John the Baptist is saying very clearly to these people, Jesus is God. He is the one that has come to be your Savior. He's not just a king to reign and rule over you with justice. He is God himself. God in the flesh. He's exalting Jesus to the level of divinity. He's not just another prophet. He's not just a really nice guy. He is God. And you need to get ready for what he's about to do. Some really big things are about to happen. He's saying that the Messiah has come to redeem Israel. This is gospel. This is good news for these people standing there today. They're, they're wondering, is it even all right? And John's saying, oh, it's much more than all right. This is actually really big. If Christ is the bridegroom and Israel is the bride, what he's saying is that salvation's here. It's here. Jesus, God, has come to save us. He's come to redeem Israel. So what are we supposed to do? He says it very clearly. We rejoice. You get excited about this. This isn't something that you should be skeptical about. This is something that you should actually be jumping up and down in excitement about. So John the Baptist is telling his disciples that not only is this okay, but he's even rejoicing even at the voice of Jesus because it means that the Messiah has come to save us. He says that the, the bridegroom or the friend of the bridegroom rejoices even at his words. He's here and I'm excited about it is what John is saying. Now, consider the image John is painting. We're going to go on a little bit of a journey, a mental journey, and I want you to kind of think through this with me. It's, it's a lot of illustration but just follow with me in this thought. You can even close your eyes if you want to help picture this. Imagine John the Baptist is the best man of a wedding. And he's facilitating all the groomsmen and the witnesses of the wedding, making sure that everything in the wedding is perfect. He's getting everything in order. Now today we switch this role around. We have wedding planners and a lot of times it's, it's, it's even a bridesmaid. It's a, it's a woman doing this job. But back in John's day, this actually fell on the, the groom's responsibility. We talked about this a little bit in John 2 with that wedding ceremony. The, the groom is the one that takes care of most things and he delegates a lot of that to the, the friend of the bridegroom, the best man. So imagine John the Baptist as this best man, the friend of the bridegroom, he says. John identifies himself as that guy in this analogy. But visualize a slightly different wedding tradition. This probably isn't exactly how weddings would have played out, but just picture this for the sake of illustration. The, the wedding party is reversed. What do I mean by that? Well, the bride comes out first. Typically, the bride is the main thing in the wedding, right? Well, reverse that, where the groom is the main thing in the wedding. Everyone watches this bride come down the aisle. And think of yourselves and your pews now, and imagine this bride coming down the aisle, and witnesses as they're around you, people looking on to the wedding, those who are there to confirm or object to the wedding, they lean over and they start to comment to themselves. You hear this whispering, this murmuring, and they start to talk about things about like her dress being really, really white. Her dress is oddly white. And they say things like this. I heard she poured around with that Egyptian. She shouldn't be wearing white like that. How dare her? She should be wearing an ivory, an off-white. Everyone knows who she is. She's done this thing or that thing. And someone else says, oh, I thought it was the Assyrian that she slept with. I thought she was worshiping their, their idols. And someone else says, it was probably both. And it may have been. 
She played the whore like a prostitute. But at least they make some money. She does it for free. This is some of the things that has been said about Israel in the Old Testament, if you aren't catching on. So John, the best man, knew all of this. He knows. And even warned the bride to repent beforehand, right? To make herself ready for this groom. He wasn't dumb. He knew who she was. But he also knew who the groom was. He knew who this man was. Now all the bridesmaids and the groomsmen follow the bride to the front of the wedding ceremony, and all the people wait for this big moment where the main thing comes through. And then it comes. Jesus opens up the doors, and he walks through the sanctuary doors down the aisle. And the same kind of thing happens. The, murmur, the murmuring comes back. It provokes, provokes all kinds of comments. Some whisper unkind words and make accusations about his character because he's a mar- uh, agreed to marry this bride, who everyone knows is a lewd and scandalous woman. They know it. There's no secret about it. And the ushers, as they start seeing these people kind of whisper and say rude things, these are the elders of the church. They catch wind of this, and they escort them out. They bring these people out. They won't tolerate the wedding going this way. So these people, they're looking down their noses at the bride, and even the bridegroom is saying, we would never do such a thing. How awful of, of her to do these things, and why would Jesus marry someone like that? Why would he do this? Now others... Others, on the other hand, they're blown away. How, how could someone like this, this honorable man, this good, good, handsome man, stoop down to that level? Why? Why would he do that? He deserves so much better, some say. What an odd thing. How bizarre, others say. You can see how much he loves her just from hearing his voice, someone might say. But everyone in the room is wondering the same question. Is this okay? Is this all right, what's happening here? A groom that's perfect marrying an obviously unperfect, lewd, scandalous, all kinds of terminology that you could patch onto this bride. Is this okay? And at this point, the bridegroom is nearing the bride to take her hand, and everyone looks to see what John, the best man, thinks of all this. Will he approve? What's the best man think of this? How does he think about the, all these people coming to see this event? And what they find is a beaming smile on John's face. He's excited. He's happy about it. He's happy for the groom. He's even happy for the bride. He's not just okay with this. His joy is complete. You can see his smile beaming. John then notices that everyone's looking at him. And this kind of strikes him as odd. Why are you looking at me? You didn't come here to see me, right? So what does John do? Well, he points to the bride and to the bridegroom, saying, no, I'm not the center, I'm not the point. Kind of like when a, a pastor's preaching and a, a little child is out in the pew and he starts to get distracted and look in the wrong direction, and the dad kind of nudges him and says, no, up there, kind of points up there. John does something like this. Everyone's looking at him, and he's saying, no, I'm, I'm not the point. You pay attention, look up there, right? So this is the thing that's kind of going on. He's saying, I must decrease, he must increase. We're here for a different reason. I'm not the point. I was just here to get things ready. That's my job in this wedding. I'm just preparing things. I'm just getting everything in order. So attention has to shift from John to the groom, to Jesus. So John says, I'm not the point. Once again, I'm the pointer. Now, we're pretty deep in this imagery. I'm going to keep going with this. So just imagine this. So they're up here. The pastor officiating the wedding just happens to be Jesus' father. You know that guy. He, he's standing behind them as they face, to, face each other. Now, he knows this congregation well enough to know, because he's got a pastor's heart, he well, knows them well enough to know what they're thinking. 
And he gives them a short pastoral homily that speaks straight to their hearts. And he says this. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He says that twice now. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. For he who God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. The sermon closes. Now, After the sermon, the father who, again, is officiating the wedding says, If anyone objects to this marriage, speak now or forever hold your peace. And surprisingly, people stand up. They're ready to talk. They're ready to bring accusation. And the father points as to signal that he, the, this person may speak and give his first objection. What will you say to object to this wedding? And the first witness says, This bride's been unfaithful. I caught her in the act of adultery. I saw her doing it. The father and the son are close. They know each other very well. So Jesus sees the look on the father's face and sees wrath. He sees he's angry about this. Why? Because just three months ago, that man was in his office confessing that he had cheated on his own wife. And now he thinks he's got his life all cleaned up and he's ready to point fingers. So the pastor's a little angry about this. He's frustrated. He's wrathful about this. Why is he so quick to throw this bride out of the bus when he is no better? But Jesus whispers back, forgive them. They know, know not what they do. Just picture that. Jesus up there with the bride in front of him. The father then looks at Jesus in love and says, I put this matter in your hands. All things I put in your hands. So Jesus looks at the crowd and says, he who is without sin may object next. Let's hear it. And one by one, they start to sit down. No one has anything else to say. So then the father exhorted the witnesses that whoever believes Jesus, the groom, the son, has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. In other words, the point of the sermon is, if you still object to this marriage, you may leave now. This is something to be excited about. Now, that, that was a deep, deep reflection. That was a deep, deep imagery that, that you've been um, kind of wrapped up in. And I want to kind of back up for a second and reflect for just a moment. This is a quick sermon. It has just really simple points, but they're, they're really big points. Now, in light of John's consideration uh, on the ministry of Jesus, I want two things to weigh heavy on you. Number one, Jesus saving people is something that you should greatly rejoice in, period. If the ministry of Jesus is going forward and people are being saved and all are coming to Jesus, you need to get excited and not say anything else. Number two, if you don't rejoice with the heavenly testimony that Jesus is saving slash marrying an unworthy bride, the wrath of God is actually upon you. This is a statement from God of judgment. If you can't get on board with the plan of redemption that Jesus is saving an unworthy bride, then you are against God. The way that we respond to Christ's ministry in the church is related to how we relate to him. Think about that. If you have a problem with the bride, you have a problem with the groom. If you have a problem with my wife, you have a problem with me. It's the same way with Jesus and his bride. 
as we were talking about last week, we should love the church despite her weaknesses. doesn't mean you have to love her sins, love her weaknesses, but you do recognize that the church is the bride of Christ. It's who Jesus loves. And because Jesus loves her, that should change you to help you love her as well. Because you've been loved by Jesus as well. As we close, I want to once again return to the wedding imagery and ask a couple questions. Where do you stand in this picture? Where are you at in the scene of that wedding that John paints of the bride and the bridegroom, the groomsmen, the friend of the, 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 bride or the groom? Where do you stand in this picture? Are you focused on the wrong things? Has the pointer, the friend of the bridegroom, taken your focus? Are you looking too much in other places, the pointers, maybe another pastor of another church? Are you looking too much at what they are doing and not focusing on the actual ministry of Jesus? Has the bride maybe taken your focus where all you see is her problems? Only seeing her sins. Do you sometimes object that God could marry an unworthy partner to his son Jesus? How dare he hook up with this woman? Does that bother you that Jesus saves people that you don't like? Think about that. There's Christians out there that aren't anything like you. They might be even opposite of you. But the only thing you might have in common is that you confess that same truth that Jesus loves them. Right? We need to be careful in the way that we place ourselves in the ministry of Jesus. We must get on board, rejoice in what Jesus is rejoicing in, rejoice in what the whole point is, which is Christ marrying his bride. So what's more important to you, rejoicing at the marriage celebration or grumbling and objecting about the disqualifying sins, the things that make it not okay in our minds? Is that what you're stuck up on? Is that hanging up, or hanging up your moving forward in Christian ministry? Now, the answer to these questions reveal whether or not you've listened to this sermon correctly or not. Now, bear with me. Listen. If you've been listening to this sermon thinking of anyone besides yourself holding Christ's hand, then you've tripped up. You've missed it. You are the whoring bride. I am the whoring bride. We are the ones that let idols grow up in our hearts. We are the sinners. We are the ones that just confessed all those sins to the Lord. Those things that you secretly, quietly confess to the Lord, that is the things that everyone is whispering about. Think about that. And that's who Jesus is marrying. You're not worthy. But yet a beautiful thing has happened where the groomsman has come to marry an unworthy bride. And until you realize that you are the bride that you could never deserve a perfect husband, yet the perfect husband has come to, ch- to choose you. He chose you, loved you first, and you love him because he's first loved you. Until you realize that, you are the bridegroom, or the, the bridegroom has you. Right? That's what John says. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. Until you realize that you are the bride, your joy will never be complete. You will never be able to rejoice like John the Baptist. So church, that's the charge for you this morning. Rejoice. Get excited about what Jesus is doing, saving a bride that doesn't deserve it. And if you have a problem with it, if you can't get on board with that, then the wrath of God remains upon you. Amen? Let's pray.